The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo, CEO of the Cancer Support Community. The Wellness Community and Gildas Club have united to become the Cancer Support Community, one of the largest providers of cancer support in the United States and around the world. Our services are offered at more than 100 locations worldwide and online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. Uh, I have, uh, as many of you know, been following with fascination and tremendous interest the work of scientists studying dogs' ability to detect cancer and how that ability might be applied in a clinical setting. This work is particularly important for cancers uh, for which there are currently no effective means of uh, detection or for, for which the testing process may be uh, particularly invasive. Um, we've had on the show scientists working with dogs on detecting ovarian and thyroid cancers. Um, today, in the latest installment of our series, Innovation Happens, we're going to take a look at electronic noses. Inspired by dogs' natural smelling ability, scientists and engineers are working to develop machines that will allow doctors to quickly and effectively detect cancers. With us today uh, to talk about this area of work is Dr. George Preddy. Later, we will be joined by Dr. Jonathan Sackner-Bernstein. Dr. George Preddy is an analytical organic chemist currently working at the Monell Chemical Census Center in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, he is also an adjunct professor at the Department of Dermatology at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. Uh, he is a world-renowned uh, uh, researcher and known for his research on human body odors and is currently the principal investigator in unique interdisciplinary collaboration in which the University of Pennsylvania School of Veterinary Medicine's Working Dog Center, the School of Arts and Sciences Department of Physics and Astronomy, Penn Medicine's Division of Gynecologic Oncology and the Monell Chemical Census Center are participating. They've joined together to study ovarian cancer detection by dogs and e-sensors. And for more than four decades, Dr. Preddy's research has focused on the nature, origin, and functional significance of human odors. In addition to dozens of peer-reviewed research articles, Dr. Preddy holds more than a dozen patents. Uh, his work has frequently been cited in print and electronic media, including the New York Times Magazine, the Philadelphia Inquirer, and ABC's Primetime Medical Mysteries. Welcome to the show, Dr. Preddy. Well, thank you for that wonderful introduction. I didn't know very I had done impressive. so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very impressive. It's good to be reminded sometimes, isn't it? <laughs> um, Dr. Preddy, I want to jump into um, the cancer-related questions, but I think it might be uh, instructive for us to take a step back in order to get to a better understanding of the work and some of the challenges and opportunities you're, you're facing and what researchers hope to accomplish. So let's start with in, the, in, in sort of some simple terms, simplest terms possible, as if you were maybe teaching a, a middle, school, middle school science. Um, can you explain what exactly is odor? Let's talk about odor um, as, as a starting point. 
Okay, when you smell something, you are smelling organic molecules that are floating up into the air. Uh, you know, coffee, uh, frying bacon, uh, scrambled eggs, uh, the popcorn, anything you can think of that might have a uh, an aroma you can instantly bring to mind has been is all encoded by uh, volatile organic compounds. So these compounds have a uh, are are light, and they get up into the atmosphere. Uh, some proportion of them gets up into the air and gets into your nasal uh, nasal cavity when you sniff and uh, interacts with your uh, the olfactory um, receptors in your nose, and you perceive an odor. Uh, generally, uh, most odors you perceive are mixtures of compounds, but occasionally you will get some things like um, uh, popcorn that is, principally one compound or a rose, uh, generally one or two compounds uh, make up that, the volatile compounds make up that nice smell. So mm-hmm. in simplest terms, they are, you know, molecules of, of a certain molecular weight. They are low enough in molecular weight that they get into the atmosphere. Some portion of them gets into the atmosphere mm-hmm. and interacts with your nose and you smell them. So what? So so now take the take the next step forward. What do we know about odor and disease? What's the what's the relationship here? Well, uh, we used to know a lot more about it maybe a hundred or a thousand years ago because uh, physicians of those days did not have the quantitative uh, laboratory laboratory and diagnostic and uh, imaging techniques that phys- current uh, modern physicians have. So. It's sort of, uh, yeah, and back, uh, if you go back a hundred years even, uh, physicians often had to rely on their, uh, all, all of their five senses to help in diagnosis. I mean, physicians still listen to you. They palpate, uh, to get feel for certain, uh, organs. They, uh, they will listen to your heart and lungs, uh, using a stethoscope. And they, and then they will do quantitative, uh, testing using, uh, blood or urine. But uh, back uh, many centuries ago, or even a century ago, this was uh, these tests. This type of testing was not possible. So many physicians, and there is a literature on this, that certain diseases became um, associated with the odor that they produce. Mm-hmm. So many physicians often relied on their sense of smell to help in diagnosis of certain diseases. Most particular diseases caused by infections or um, uh, metabo- met- changes in metabolism will uh, lead to a more pronounced body odor uh, emanating from perhaps your your urine or your mouth or your uh, upper torso, but uh, so but somewhere there will be an odor produced because of these metabolic or infectious changes. Mm-hmm. So. Dr. Preddy, we know that dogs have an incredible sense of smell and and several studies, and we've had some of these researchers on our show, several studies have found them to have over 90% accuracy in detecting cancer. Do we, Mm -hmm. what what do we know about that? Do we know what the dogs are smelling? Does cancer have a a specific or distinctive smell that these dogs Mm -hmm. are detecting? Well, um, let's put it this way. From what we've seen so far, our, uh, the dogs are detecting what appears to be a, a change in odor pattern. 
So there may not be unique metabolites associated with the disease uh, we're studying, but there appears to be a change in the quantitative change in the profile of the odors that are emanating from the body fluid we're looking at. And in our case, we're looking at uh, blood plasma. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, we so they're, don't know they're smelling exactly a change, so not necessarily a specific smell. Like you said, there are smells that we smell that are distinctive. We know what they are. They're not necessarily right. smelling something specific, but they're smelling a change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. Change, uh, and the, that, that change uh, signals, it, I mean, it doesn't signal a disease to the dog. It just tells them that this is what they're looking for. Got it. But we don't know, uh, we know the, you know, we've been identifying the volatile organic compounds that we see in the plasma, but we don't know which of these are all, I'm sure the dogs are using all of them that we see as part of their information processing uh, and telling them that this is the sample that they're supposed to respond to. I see, I see. So um, I-, I mentioned at the top of the show, Dr. Preddy, that you're part of this incredible multi disciplinary team. We're talking about veterinary medicine, yes. uh, physics, mm-hmm. astronomy, oncology, chemical senses. It's quite an extraordinary uh, interdisciplinary team. Why this particular composition of, of experts? What does each bring to the table? Everybody brings a separate uh, uh, expertise to the table. I do, uh, for example, my expertise is in analytical organic chemistry. So I have expertise in identif- separating and identifying uh, complex mixtures of volatile organic compounds. My colleague, Dr. Johnson, who's in the Department of Astronomy and Physics, is a uh, condensed matter physicist, and he is the one, his, it is his laboratory that is developing the nanotechnology-enabled sensor system that we will be, that we uh, see as the ultimate tool for um, uh, detecting this disease in a clinical setting. Uh, the clinician involved, Dr. Janos Tanyi, that should be obvious. He is the person who knows all about the uh, cancers we are studying, and he is doing the surgeries, so he can consent and obtain samples for, for us, for our research, and then identify the types of samples we are working with from a clinical standpoint, telling us what, well, whether it was a benign sample that he removed from the patient, a benign growth or a cancerous growth, if it was a cancerous growth, what is it, uh, how far along is it, the staging and things like this all have to be told, uh, given as part of the uh, bioinformatic uh, profile we like to have. Uh, finally, there's Dr. Uh, Cindiato, who is the, um, the head of the Penn, working, uh, Penn Vet Working Dog Center. She mm-hmm. is training the uh, very, uh, very uh, knowledgeable canines to detect the, uh, the difference in smell that is indicative of the cancer. Mm-hmm. Now, this doesn't mean we'll have, I know one of your questions is probably going to be, is there going to be a dog in the clinic? Well, um, there may not be. <laughs> there, may, there, there may be some uh, boutique clinic somewhere when, when mm-hmm. this work is uh, successful that will have a dog that will smell you. Instead of a cat scan, you could have a dog scan. But uh, <laughs> uh, we don't envision a dog in the clinic doing this on a routine basis. We envision a, an electronic nanotechnology-enabled e-nose device to be doing the routine sampling of many, many, many samples across a, a day. 
Okay. So we've got uh, just a couple of minutes until our, our uh, first break here, Dr. Preddy. But, um, and then we're, you know, when we come back from the break, we're going to talk about the, the, you know, the device and the detection, get a little bit more sure. into this electronic nose idea. But just uh, why did the team decide to investigate ovarian cancer? Tell us about that selection. Well, it was, it's been something I've been, uh, I and other people have been interested in for a long time. Dr. Johnson and I were actually working together before we met uh, Dr. Otto and uh, Dr. Tanyi. Uh, well, Dr. Tanyi we knew because we were already in a collaboration with him and making plans to look at ovarian cancer. Uh, and then we were approached by Dr. Otto and another physician, uh, Dr. Jody Seymour, who is a, uh, she's sort of the uh, the lone wolf of the, of this collaboration. She's actually an ophthalmologist. Uh, uh, an op, yeah, an eye doctor, an ophthalmologist, <laughs> yep. and but she had she had a lot of personal interest in the ovarian cancer situation because of uh, family history. So uh, she's the one who talked to Cindy, and they went to Dr. Tanya, and Dr. Tanya said, "Hey, I know these other two characters over, and one is at Monell, one is in physics." So we all got together and formed this collaboration, which seemed to be a very uh, marriage made in heaven because we all. I have complementary techniques, and we all look at something different, but mm-hmm. we all are on the same path towards developing a device for detecting a hidden cancer. And that's why this is important, because it's hidden and it's not obvious to mm-hmm. uh, by examination. Uh, mm-hmm. It's almost you need surgery to, exa- to right, right. detect Right, right. So no... No good screening test for ovarian, no good blood test, no exactly. good. So, so really, as you say, focusing on a, a, a hidden cancer, one that's not easily detected, often diagnosed uh, in, a, in a later stage of illness uh, because of that. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're, we're uh, talking today uh, in our series, Innovation Happens, about the electronic nose um, and the use of some uh, emerging technology uh, to detect cancers in a, in a non-invasive way. We've got Dr. George uh, Preddy with us today. We've got a lot to, uh, lot to talk about on the show, a lot to cover. Uh, we're going to have a little more time after the break with Dr. Preddy, and then we will be joined by Dr. Jonathan Sackner-Bernstein. We're going to take a quick break right now. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We'll be right back. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer, created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. 
The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is being brought to you in part by Amgen Oncology and Lilly Oncology. I'm your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're talking with Dr. George Preddy, an analytical organic chemist at the Morale Chemical Senses Center in Philadelphia. Dr. Preddy is an expert on human odors and is part of an interdisciplinary team, which includes doctors, physicists, veterinarians, trying to determine if ovarian cancer has a smell and if they can, with that knowledge, create an electronic nose that can detect the cancer at early treatable stages. Later in the show, we will be joined by Dr. Jonathan Sackner-Bernstein. Dr. Preddy, uh, let's talk a little bit more specifically about um, the study. Can you tell us how the study is designed and what what, what are the goals of the study? What is your team undertaking here? Well, right now with very little money and um, a lot of uh, hard work, Mm -hmm. what we are trying to do uh, and what we have done is to demonstrate that there is an odor signature present in the plasma samples from uh, people with primary ovarian cancer that is not present in either people with benign ovarian disease or healthy control uh, subjects. So that was the first goal. Is there an odor signature present? We assume that there was and we have demonstrated it now. The dogs detect it. Sensors, our um, nanotechnology-enabled sensors uh, detect it. And we see a different pattern in the volatile organic compounds uh, using my techniques. So there is a different, uh, there is an odor signature that appears to be characteristic of the cancer. Um, we have the compounds, most of the compounds identified, at least in a tentative fashion. And now we'd like to, and this was done on a very, with a very small number of subjects. Um, I think 10 to 20 subjects were the numbers we, we did for the first, uh, first group of people. So, so we had 10, 10 primary cancers, 10 benign, uh, ovarian growths and 10, uh, controls. Mm-hmm. So we've all analyzed them using all the complementary techniques and have demonstrated that there's a, an odor pattern there. The dogs can detect it very reliably. So now uh, we go on to, uh, you know, let's validate this in a larger data set. We need more data. Uh, you can't base a clinical test on 10 people. So we'd like to, uh, what we're doing is trying to look, looking at um, uh, trying to get, using these preliminary results to try to get funding for a much larger study where we look at uh, large numbers of subjects. Uh, under different conditions to do uh, and try to uh, see if the, that pattern remains constant 
throughout this in a larger data set, a larger sample set. So I I noticed, uh, Dr. Preddy, in reading about various drug-related studies, I know that different studies are using different types of samples. Some use blood, some use urine, some use tissue samples. Can you explain to us the pros and cons of different types of samples and how that, you know, informed your decision about how to approach your study? Yeah, we uh, we didn't want to use urine or breath or saliva because there's many potential confounds there. Mm-hmm. Um, blood, blood is routinely taken for almost every clinical study, so uh, people are sort of used to giving a, a, a blood sample. Um, blood, blood plasma has, uh, from the literature um, I've read, there, there are not a lot of volatile compounds present, so it, it would be easier to see. Uh, we thought it might be easier to see changes within plasma. Plus, we had a, an archive of these samples uh, present. Uh, so, you know, Dr. Tanyi, who's doing surgery uh, every, you know, like two or three days a week, uh, from every patient, he collects a, a blood sample. Now, uh, you know, it's used for genetic studies and a lot of other studies uh, within the, the Penn, uh, University of Pennsylvania Medical School system. But uh, we were able to uh, tap into this sample uh, gathering process with Dr. Tanyi's uh, uh, collaboration and obtain plasma samples to look at as a first, first go-round to see if there was a <clears throat> to see if there were, were changes there, and uh, indeed there are. So tell me as a researcher, what has, what has it been like for you working with, with dogs, with man's, uh, man's best friend? Was, uh, you know, has the experience been what you expected? Was there anything that uh, surprised you? I mean, this is, you know, I, when I talk to people about the, you know, the work that's happening here, um, there's a lot of, lot of surprise, a lot of interesting you know, reaction. But what's it been like for you being on the front line of this project? No, well, I, I, I sort of expected them to be able to detect this because the, <clears throat> just from my own personal experience with, with my, you know, pets in the house, you know, you know that they, they live in a total olfactory sensory world. They sniff everything and they, they go, when you take them for a walk, it's like the, uh, instead of you reading a newspaper or looking at the internet, they're sniffing around for information. That's how they get their information through their nose. So they have a, um, uh, you know, they, they have a, a lot of olfactory processing that we probably don't even, uh, you know, haven't realized because we don't have as many receptors or as much of our brain dedicated to olfactory perception as a dog does. But, uh, Working with them, I mean, I don't work on a day-to-day basis with them. I've seen I've seen them do their work, and uh, you know, it's everything I expected. I what I am incredulous at is how readily, how fast they can detect the differences in samples. It's just unbelievable because I've smelled all these samples, and I've smelled much larger amounts of the of blood, like five or six times the amounts that they they are using to test the dogs with, mm-hmm. and the fact that they can pick out this cancer odor signature from them, to me, is just amazing, that their, their sense of smell is just unbelievable. Mm. It's, just, it's just so fascinating. Do you, um, can you tell us a little bit about what you know about how 
patients reacted? I mean, was it easy or difficult to get patients to to participate? How did the react they react to the well, idea I, of researchers I, I, I using consent, scent? You I know, don't con- I don't consent to patients, so I, I don't. I know Dr. Tanyi uh, does explain to them, you know, if you know, can we use your blood for this study? And he he briefly explains the study, and I think there are. Well, you know, many, uh, uh, we've done a lot of TV interviews where, and Dr. Tani's been interviewed and some of the patients have been interviewed. So I know they're very, uh, they're all very willing and gun ho to do this. And they're, they're, many of them are surprised by the dog. Some of them are not that, you know, of course they own dogs, so they know that how sensitive their dog smell can be, uh, yeah. dog's odor detecting ability can be. So I think it's all been a positive type of reaction. In fact, the the women, the the foundation that gave us the initial money for this, that really started us off and has kept us going, is from the Kaleidoscope of Hope Foundation. It's a foundation in New Jersey, funded mostly by ovarian cancer survivors and and or their spouses and relatives, and they are all giddy with the dogs. I mean, I've been to a couple of their events, and we've brought one of the detection dogs with them, with us, to uh, Dr. Otto and I. And, you know, they have uh, cancer walks and things like that where the dogs have participated. So uh, everybody is very positive with regard to the detection dogs. Uh, The critical part is, can we keep this, uh, keeping the project going and getting the funding to see it through to a device to device development, translating the results we have to the, to a device that can be used in the clinic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, you know, I think that uh, you know, I would imagine people are are more and more used to seeing dogs uh, around to detect things. I mean, we you know we see dogs, uh, you know, bomb sniffing dogs. We see dogs in the airports and train stations, and and uh, you know, we see dogs right. sent sent in to find lost children, and and so mm-hmm. I mean, we're using these dogs for some extraordinary. Purposes, so um, you know, we, we folks may have gotten a little more used to the idea, you know, over the years. Um, Dr. Preddy, before we go to our our, our next break here, um, I'd like to just hear a little bit more about your background and what led you to be interested in the study of scent and and, and odor, and really what has maintained that interest, uh, you know, all these years later. Did you ever even imagine you'd be working on a study like this? Uh. I sort of did when I first started doing this, uh, maybe uh, 35 years ago, because we were working, uh, my initial work out of graduate school, when I came here out of graduate school, uh, we were, we were, uh, sort of charted, my, the group I'm in within Monell, uh, is, was to do mammalian, uh, chemical communication. How odors are used by, uh, mammals to communicate different physiological states between uh, members of the same uh, species. And our focus quickly became oriented towards humans. So humans put out an odor that is indicative of ovulation, for example, or some other physiological state. And because of work elsewhere that was going on with, you know, uh, non-human primates, we sought to look at vaginal fluids as a source of odor that might be communicative in some, have some sort of communicative function. So I became, uh, you know, I, I developed a collaborative relationship with a uh, 
with the Family Planning uh, Center at Penn and one of the gynecologists there, and we published many papers on the odor profile from the human vaginal fluids. And in reading all the literature in this area, I became interested. That's where I became interested in diseases of the reproductive tract that might be diagnosed using odors that are uh, using odors uh, present in the vaginal fluid. So I knew 30 years ago that, you know, ovarian cancer was very deadly and that it was mm-hmm. not diagnosable. And I've always had that in the back of my mind. So when this opportunity, when I started reading, uh, you know, five or three or four years ago that, the, you know, dogs could possibly detect cancer and, and there was a study from Europe that showed that they could detect ovarian cancer, mm-hmm. uh, I got, uh, I I became very, uh, it rekindled my interest mm-hmm. in uh, looking at uh, this, this wow. disease state through odor. Yeah. But in the interim, we've we've analyzed just about every body uh, odor-producing area of humans. You know, mm. underarms. Underarms is what I'm most famous for. <laughs> or, that's a great claim to fame, Dr. Preddy. Uh, this is frankly <laughs> speaking about cancer uh, in our series, Innovation Happens. We're talking about the electronic nose and, and a sense of smell to detect cancer. Dr. Preddy is an analytical organic chemist at the uh, Monell uh, Chemical Census Center in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We've, uh, we've got uh, a lot more to talk about with Dr. Preddy. We're going to take a quick break here on Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We will be right back. Don't go away. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. You are listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is brought to you in part by Onyx Pharmaceuticals and Amgen subsidiary in Bristol-Myers Squibb. I'm Kim Tibaldo, and today we're, today we're talking about the development of electronic noses, to detect cancer. Yes, you heard me right. And with us is Dr. George Preddy. Dr. Preddy is a chemist at the Monell Chemical Census Center and adjunct professor at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, Department of Dermatology. He's, a, he's world-renowned for his research on human body odors and is the principal investigator in a study that is looking into using scent to detect early-stage ovarian cancer. Dr. Preddy is collaborating with the University of Pennsylvania School of Veterinary Medicine's Working Dog Center, Penn Physics Department and Penn's Medicine Division uh, of Gynecologic Oncology. Uh, in our uh, uh, final segment of the show, a little bit later, we'll be joined by Dr. Jonathan Sackner Bernstein. Um, Dr. Preddy, according to research pulled together by uh, our production team here, humans can detect nearly 10,000 different smells. Uh, dogs have up to 300 million olfactory receptors in their noses, whereas humans have approximately 6 million. I'll say that again. Dogs have up to 300 million 
olfactory receptors compared to about 6 million in humans. And uh, the part of a dog's brain that analyzes smell is, is said to be perhaps 40 times greater than, than uh, our sense of smell as humans. So, so let's talk about this idea of electronic noses and generally speaking, how are electronic noses performing when compared to dogs? Well, we don't have a direct comparison between the uh, dog and the electronic nose that we're building because the uh, the device is still being uh, developed. It's it's a uh, device in uh, you know, right now. We have uh, Dr. Johnson's lab can put 140 different sensors into a into a uh, on a chip that's about the size of a quarter. Um, so. Because of the uh, the, te- the small uh, small nature of these nano sensors, um, you could get uh, hundreds of hundreds of hundreds of uh, sensors to give you the computing power of a mammalian nose. Now, whether it will be as uh, robust and you know sensitive as a dog, we don't know. But uh, you know that that's a study that can come later. Uh, but right now, we are uh, with just a hundred sensor chip or 140 sensor chip, uh, Dr. Johnson is, e- is able to easily discriminate uh, ovarian cancers, uh, pr- plasma samples from ovarian cancers, uh, benign growths, benign ovarian growths, and healthy controls. So, uh, with that size chip, with that size chip, he's able to do it. Now, the the next stage is to put it into a device that has a readout and something that things that things that can be easily used right now it's a laboratory tool okay. that can be used in a laboratory by highly trained uh people so ultimately yeah. we want to make a device that is yeah. can be used by a you know uh a, a technical technically trained individual sort of like the you know the uh, MRI that uh, the MRI device is a very complicated device uh, but you know, uh, you can train people to use it and get data from it. So we want the electronic nose to be in the same category at some point. So it could be a uh, it could be a potential healthcare career path. What do you do for a living? I'm an e nose technician, is what you're that saying. Could be, could be, <laughs> could could be, could be. So interesting. Um, so how long have e noses, you know, been around? Or and 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 are are we still okay. just in? Are we just in the lab with this right now, or are we using this yet no, there, in any there, there day-to-day are, medical setting? There's a, um, there's a. Uh, let's see. I think e noses first came on the market back in the uh, mid to late '80s uh, or thereabouts. May have been the first commercially developed e nose, and uh, it the commercial ones are still fairly simple. They consist mm-hmm. of. Somewhere between eight and thirty-two sensors that are uh, not nanotechnology enabled, from what I could see. They're traditional, what I call more traditional sensor types. They're, excuse me, generally um, polymers embedded into uh, uh, polymers that have embedded in them various organic molecules or ionics uh, materials that respond electrically when odors hit them. Uh, many of these devices are very sensitive to moisture, which is not which is not good when you're working with biological samples. Mm-hmm. So uh, many of the commercial ones are can be used and have been used in, in clinically 
design studies that have been published in the literature, you can do uh, a search in, in uh, the medical literature and find a number of, of studies that have used uh, commercially available electronic noses to determine differences between certain types of disease disease states. And uh, But they have not come into large use, yeah, you know, routine, routine use for diagnostic purposes as yet. Yeah. Okay. And and so, Dr. Pretty, if we're trying to kind of close our eyes and imagine this, can you describe for us what this e-nose looks like that you're using in your study? And you know, what are what are we we're talking about? We're not, you know, people uh, I think might have different ideas in their head about what an e-nose actually is. Um, can you describe that for us? Well, I mean, the one we're using is you would not recognize it as a nose. I mean, it's a it's a laboratory uh, device. It's it's got a lot of a lot of hoses and clamps and various things attached to it, all all designed to bring odor onto a a very small chip uh, that sits uh, that sits in a uh, in a in a chamber that can be swept with different types of gases. Uh, so, it uh, the commercial ones are are hand are anywhere from handheld to the size of a. Uh, a small uh, microwave device that sits on a desk. Uh, mm-hmm. So, and they all have inlets and outlets to bring samples into them. So it, it's hard to, uh, you know, it's, it's bigger. It's as big as a bread box, maybe. But uh, <laughs> the, some of the commercial ones, when and some of them are a little bit bigger than that. But you know, they're not the size of an MRI or anything like that, where you, uh-huh. you can lay down in them. So um, it's a uh, it's a small device, and it's it's going to be handheld. And in certain instances, you can. It will be. Uh, it could be solar powered and things like that for for routine use outside. Uh, outside, uh, if you have it in the field. So all of these things are. Uh, there's still many many generations to come in the future that will have uh, electronic noses that we I, even I don't envision as yet. But I do know they will have many 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 sensors on them mm-hmm. to approximate the power of the. Uh, of a dog or some sort of mammal's nose that can be very sensitive and diverse. And I think I read that that we might be getting, you know, moving to a point where it would be maybe the size of an iPhone. Yes, that is one thing that uh, you know, a lot of people have talked about. It's for mm-hmm. routine use. You know, do I have right. bad breath? Do I have? Uh, am I am I a diabetic? And can I monitor my my blood sugar by an odor that's uh, and do I have a, can I have an app for it on my iPhone? Yeah, that, all that type of stuff is coming. But Interesting. It, it, it's not here yet. So, it, with regard to your study, Doctor Pretty, the study in which you are involved, what what are what are next steps for for you and for the team there working on this? Get more money so we can move the <laughs> uh, study forward to more and more samples. You know, validating a larger number of people. So that's really what it we're talking funny, but about, about, about funny, volume. But it would be the, the same study, but you need to take it to a larger group of people. Yeah, right. I mean, you know, 10 people is, is good. It's good preliminary data, but we want to demonstrate it in a much larger sample group. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And does the team talk about other, other cancers besides ovarian cancer? Sure. But let's get this one done first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, in some of the, the studies I've read, some of the literature I've read, there still seems to be a lot of resistance in this area and using uh, smell to detect cancer, whether it's with dogs, whether it's, you know, with electronic noses. Yet you talked about 
the fact that uh, you know doctors have using have been using this 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 concept of smelling illness back to the time of sort of Hippocrates in ancient in ancient Greece. Why do you think there's still a resistance to it? It's just maybe too too much out of the box for people. I, I don't know. Maybe too much. I ask ask someone uh, who's who resists it and uh, that question because. Uh, it's not going to replace anything. It's going to be augmenting or uh, helping the the things we already use now. So there shouldn't be resistance to something that's going to increase your diagnostic power. So do you think that it would be eventually become a, a reliable diagnostic tool, or will it just become a red flag and we're still going to have to do all the same tests and biopsies and scans to get a definitive diagnosis, or will this eventually... Well, let's, a- well what, what does a pap smear do? I mean, it mm-hmm. tells you that something, something might be wrong, and then you go in for further testing. I mean, I, I don't envision this thing as being any different, that as part of your mo- yearly exam, you have a, a blood sample or a vaginal smear taken, and it's, it's, it's looked at by a number of different devices, either microscopy or... or um, uh, an odor profile, and it tells you that there is something different than normal, and it should be tested further. Mm-hmm. When you have a mammogram and the, and the person and the uh, radiologist sees something, they you know the, they bring you in for more testing too. So I, I know there's always the first step that, uh, but right now there is no first step for ovarian cancer. Yeah, yeah, and it, and I guess an interesting step in this, you know, in this process will also be related to the use of it and, you know, in terms of, of, of quote unquote guidelines, you know, there's been a lot of interesting conversation in, in, in cancer recently about guidelines and who should be getting what screenings based on risk mm-hmm. factors, based on age and, you know, based on things like that. There have yes. been a lot of changes right. because of the idea of false positives and, you know, all of those mm-hmm. other challenges that come up in, in, uh, you know, in, uh, in the screening conversation. So um, certainly a lot, uh, you know, a lot to, to come on this, but I think it's a, you know, a fascinating, a fascinating subject. And, and I know that, um, you know, this has moved from, from, uh, you know, particularly in the, in, in the dog space from, you know, anecdotal to really moving into some hardcore scientific studies, which is obviously what is needed in order to, you know, move, move this forward and, and move this into the, you know, integration in, um, right. um, in into medical care. Um, Dr. Pretty, I want to thank you so much for coming uh, onto the show, telling us about the important work that um, that you and your team uh, uh, are doing. I hope that you will uh, come back on the show. Uh, let us know how uh, your work is progressing. Uh, Dr. George Preddy, uh, as I mentioned, is an analytical organic chemist currently working at the Monell Chemical Census Center uh, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It's a fascinating discussion. Uh, this is frankly speaking about cancer. Uh, we're talking today about the electronic nose in our series uh, innovation happens. We're going to take a quick break and uh, we will uh, be joined uh, next by Dr. Jonathan Sackner Bernstein. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Don't go away. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. 
Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is being brought to you in part by Millennium Decatur Oncology Company. I'm Kim Tebaldo. I'm thrilled to welcome back to the show our good friend, Dr. Jonathan Sackner-Bernstein. Dr. Sackner-Bernstein's uh, career as an academic cardiologist led to international recognition in the clinical research and regulatory communities. After serving as a consultant to the FDA Center for Drug uh, Drugs and Center for Devices, Jonathan was recruited to a senior role within the agency. Uh, as an associate center director in the Center for Devices, Jonathan led the launch of both safety and innovation programs at the FDA's Entrepreneurs in Residence program. Jonathan serves as a consultant to DARPA and leads SRD Med, a company that's figured out how to make uh, hack-resistant devices. Welcome, Jonathan. Hi, Kim. It's great to be here. 
Thank you. Thank you. Um, Jonathan, um, medical device. I think many of our listeners may not know uh, what, what that is. Jonathan, what are medical devices and, and what are some of the purposes they fulfill? Well, a medical device is any product that you can look at and say it's a thing that's not a pill or it's not injected, essentially. I mean, that's a bit of an oversimplification. Mm-hmm. But if it if it's, uh, relates to your health or your health care and it does not act on a chemical or a protein directly, then it's a device. So that includes anything from a scalpel or tongue depressor to a defibrillator, an infusion pump, a CAT scanner, and even software. And then, as we're discussing today, diagnostics as well. So let's so so let's uh, talk for a minute about you know this becoming an area of interest for the government. I mean, we think about the beginning of regulation of medicine. We imagine you know, the government taking action against, you know, peddling Dr. Bumba's magic elixir, uh, you know, looking at the, the medical side. But when did medical devices become an area of, of interest and, and regulation by the government? So it started really primarily as a, as a as regulation of drugs with the snake oil salesmen leading to the point where there were some who were basically selling antifreeze, essentially, and causing poisonings uh, by using it as a sweetener. Um, but, but it wasn't until the mid-1970s that medical devices became really under rigorous control uh, uh, of federal regulations. And, and interestingly, and unfortunately we don't have time to talk about it, but uh, one of the triggers for that was uh, the Church of Scientology that used a medical device to diagnose problems as well as diagnose people's loyalty to the beliefs of the Church. And that's one of the things that triggered uh, the the uh, the expansion of the FDA's authority to include medical devices. Mm, mm. Uh, it's, it's just it's fascinating, Jonathan. And we just had a great conversation with Dr. George Preddy about the development of an electronic nose that can detect cancer. And and uh, we know from our previous conversations with you that it's a long road from an idea uh, to to uh, you know to FDA approval. Can you? Just quickly break down for us the process of getting a medical device approved, uh, you know, for use. What are the steps that go from an idea to a product in the clinical or home setting? Well, the the first thing you have to do is figure out whether your device um, really can do something. And usually that's done in a laboratory either by testing it with equipment, if it's electronic or mechanical, or testing it with some blood samples if you're looking for markers of a, of a cancer. And once you think you have something, a mistake that, that tends to prolong a process that can be easily seven or ten years long from that point is that uh, a, a doc will go ahead and say, how do I study this and validate that something works and prove it's something safe and effective in a way that's good enough to get me into a medical journal? Quite frankly, mm-hmm. that level of rigor is not enough to get something to the market. The, the FDA insists on a, a higher level of rigor, and, and if people are out there thinking about devices or know people who have devices or have a doctor who's developing a device that they're hopeful they can benefit from, please encourage uh, those, those people in those groups to engage with the FDA early to make sure that you're doing all the tests the right way the first time so you don't have mm-hmm. to do them the second time, because otherwise the seven-year process will become a 15-year process. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Jonathan, t- um, can, can you just take a moment to, you know, we're hearing a lot these days about nanotechnology and how it's being used 
in cancer treatment. I ask because I'm wondering, is the FDA look at, look at nanotechnology as a, a drug, a device, a combination? Where are we with that? Well, this is, now you're really getting into the nuances of regulation. So nano, <laughs> nanomaterials, um, nanoparticles, uh, basically that's when a material is made so that the individual particles are really, really small. Less arbitrarily, it's decided, less than 100 nanometers in diameter. Um, anything bigger than that is normal. Why is that cutoff used? Because below that cutoff is where materials start to behave differently. So if you take silver, which has no effect on bacteria, and you now manufacture it so it's in nano-sized particles within this piece of of silver, um, all of a sudden it becomes a very, very potent antibacterial. And if you coat uh, devices with it, you can help prevent infections. Mm. So the materials take on special properties, and even though for the most part they act by a mechanical, by a physical means, which would theoretically mean that they should be regulated as a device, the FDA will typically choose to regulate them and has the the flexibility and the regulations to do so as a drug because then it can uh, make sure that that the people developing that product know how to test it uh, for the kinds of things that people want to know about before they get treated with a nanomaterial Uh, because it it does have drug-like properties as well when the particles get that small. Okay, okay. Um, and just as we get to the to the end of our conversation here, uh, Jonathan, there's so much happening in the sort of technological landscape today, um, just kind of hard to keep track of it all. But do, do you see any challenges or opportunities for creators of medical devices in this current technological landscape? What's your observation there? Yeah, I think that the 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 possibilities are incredibly wide, and in some ways that's part of the problem. Um, so that uh, you know, I don't know specifically what Dr. Preddy is focused on, but uh, a lot of people who have worked on e noses um, uh, started out with military applications trying to detect explosives. Mm-hmm. So that's a, a really interesting example of how a technology can start out with one application and might have even more utility for a second indication, such as uh, prostate cancer, ovarian cancer, etc. Um, and, and I think that that's one of the ways that people can make great strides. If they start to look a little bit out of their comfort zone, look to a place like a military application and say, well, what if I use this in the body? Considering mm-hmm. the cancer cells are on attack, maybe the parallels are, are more 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 relevant than many people think and opportunities can be identified yeah it's just a it's kind of a it's a fascinating area um a fascinating area of study and certainly uh we uh hope to have a lot more conversation um about this in the future as the as the science and technology advances i mean we're you know we're talking about uh, it sounds almost science fiction some of the things that uh you know that we're talking about on the show that may actually be uh, there may actually be some tools and things uh you know in the near term i mean uh just talking with dr Preddy, even the possibility of a of a device the size of an iphone that could uh 
potentially detect cancers through this e-nose, through this electronic, uh, through this electronic nose. So some fascinating stuff, and and uh, certainly um, certainly more to come in our series on innovation happens about some of these uh, amazing advances. Jonathan, I want to thank you for coming on to the show today, helping us better understand the long road scientists and inventors must travel for their ideas, ideas designed to you know, to help people. And it's exciting to see some of these uh, ideas being applied um, in the uh, in the cancer space. Uh, I want to thank our listeners today for joining us for uh, Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo, CEO of the Cancer Support Community. And I just want to remind folks that we have a whole host of uh, uh, in-person, online, and, and uh, telephone support services for people with all cancers at any stage of disease. And for their family members and loved ones to learn more about those free services, visit us at www.cancersupportcommunity.org or call our helpline at 888-793-9355. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.